Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can call you Father, having trusted in your Son as our Savior. We are thankful that we can gather together this evening, that we can exercise our freedoms and be responsible stewards of the resources and the time that you have given to us. Father, we pray this evening as we take this time to look into your Word and to consider this um, uh, subject on uh, the spiritual life and, uh, and what the um, uh, spiritual fruit is that we are to produce, uh, Father, with regard to the sacrifices that we are to offer up to you. Father, we pray that this will just be a time of uh, fruitful understanding. As we seek to understand your word, we pray that we will be challenged by these things that we might grow thereby. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to switch screens here, and then we will jump into our study this evening. So let me move my screen up there a little bit, and uh, hopefully everybody can see that okay. We're waiting on Dan to come back here in just a moment. All right, so tonight we're going to talk. What I've done over the last few weeks, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but I've expanded my notes a little bit because I had the original notes I sent out and everything was in sort of an abbreviated form. And then throughout the week, I thought, well, you know, I'll kind of flesh this out a little bit and expand my notes a little bit. So I'm always doing that. I'm always looking at the text and uh, thinking about revising. So tonight's notes are going to be an expansion of the uh, sacrifices that we offer up. And I'll give a little background on uh, just the subject of priests and priesthood throughout the Bible. So the opening verse that I have here is Romans 12:1, which says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And, uh, and we looked at this verse when we considered it as the starting point for our spiritual life because it, it starts with us being in submission to God. It starts with us making that conscious choice to surrender our lives to God. Now, in the church age, uh, Christian spiritual service is really connected with the priesthood of every believer. In uh, 1 Peter 2.5, uh, Peter says, "...you also as living stones..." And that's interesting language because you think about the temple in the Old Testament and how it consisted of physical stones, you know, concrete, not concrete, but cut stones. But here Peter says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, notice, for a holy priesthood. Uh, To what end? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Because in the Old Testament, they offered up animal sacrifices, which could be a dove, it could be a sheep, could be a bull, it could be the produce of the ground. What they offered up uh, varied, uh, but th- what they offered up was very physical in nature. And what we offer up, by and large, are spiritual sacrifices. That's what we offer up. Now, that doesn't exclude tangible things, and I'll talk about that a little bit later on. But clearly here, uh, Peter makes the comment. He says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. And again, it's tied to the priesthood of the believer to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.6, again speaking to Christians living in the dispensation of the church age, he says, And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father. 
Now, in the Old Testament, a priest was one who offers worship to God and service to others. There is a vertical aspect to the priesthood. There is a, there is a horizontal aspect uh, to the priesthood. And so the priest was one who offered up uh, worship to God and service to others. Now, in the Old Testament, before the Mosaic Law, before the Mosaic Law, uh, there are actually very few priests that are mentioned. Uh, the first uh, that I'll point out is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is an interesting fellow because he only appears uh, for just a few verses in Genesis chapter 14. And this is after a battle had taken place, and, um, and Abraham goes out to uh, fight against a man named Ketoleomer and to retrieve uh, some possessions. And so he goes out, well, as Abraham is returning from battle, it says in Genesis 14, 18, it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. It says, Now he was a priest of God Most High. El Elyon is the Hebrew there, of God Most High. And so here comes this guy, just out of, out of, the, out of left field, to meet Abraham. And he's called a priest of God Most High. And this right, uh, right here tells you that there were other believers besides Abraham in this part of the world. In fact, this man is functioning as a priest. In fact, he comes out and he blesses Abraham. It says, and he blessed him, and he said, Blessed be Abraham, God of, of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, and he that is Abram, gave him, that is Melchizedek, a tenth of all. And what he gave him was really a tenth of the spoils of war. <laughs> that was what he gave him. And uh, this tenth that Abraham gave, by the way, he was not under any compulsion to do so. It's not like there was a divine mandate that came from heaven with regard to tithing. This is a one-and-done deal as far as we know biblically. So he offers this tenth of the spoils of war. But we learn about Melchizedek. Now we also learn about another man named Ruel or, or Jethro. We could call him R.J., and, uh, and this was fa uh, Moses' father-in-law, because sometimes he goes by Ruel, and sometimes he goes by Jethro. The scripture uses both names. I call him R.J., uh, but he was identified as the priest of Midian, and uh, that's mentioned in Exodus 2.16, and then again in Exodus 3.1. It says, now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, who was the priest of Midian. So his father-in-law is functioning as a priest in this region of the world. What's interesting is that Job himself served as, uh, as the priest over his household, offering sacrifices for the sins of his family. Job is not called a priest, but he's functioning like one because he's serving as a representative of others before God. And think of Job chapter 1, verse 5. It says, When the days of feasting had completed their cycle... Job would send and consecrate them, that is his children, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them, according to the number of them all, that is one for each child. <laughs> and then Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. 
And so the priest, the, the function of, uh, of a priest really was, uh, could in this case be the, the, the head of the house. It could, could be the father, as, as was the case here with Job. Now, most people prior to the Mosaic law worshiped and served God really as non-priests, really as non-priests. Men such as Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob built temporary stone altars and worshiped God directly. So, for example, after the flood, after the global deluge, when the waters had receded, we see in Genesis 8.20, it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And this would have been just a, a compilation of stones that he would have just gathered around and just made this sort of crude altar. But he made an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. We see that also with Abraham. In Genesis 12, 7, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he, that's Abram, built an altar there to the Lord. He built an altar there to the Lord. We see that also in Genesis 13, 18. It says, Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So again, this is just sort of spontaneous uh, that he's doing this. We see it also over in Genesis 26, 24, and 25. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. And this would be Isaac. Uh, Abraham, excuse me, Jacob does the same thing where Jacob uh, is here. He's, uh, he's leaving his uncle Laban, who was a sneaky fellow, uh, but so was Jacob in some ways. So I guess that was a family trait uh, anyway, but he leaves. Then God said, uh, Genesis 35, 1, then God said to Jacob, arise, go to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God. Uh, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob goes on this journey, and Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Now that's an interesting passage because apparently some of Jacob's household were worshiping idols, and they traveled with what were called these teraphim, teraphim. And if you Google teraphim, they're just little statues is all that what they are. You could put them in your pocket and travel with them. And so they were to put away these foreign gods, these little teraphim that they uh, carried with them. And so apparently there was some within Jacob's house who were idolaters. And he says, look, stop all that. Put them away. And then in verse 3, he says, and let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods. So they ponied up, they pulled them out of their satchels and said, here you go, which they had, and the rings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak, which was near Shechem. So uh, Jacob buries these, these little idols and he moves on. And then verse uh, 5, it says, And as they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is to Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, and he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel. 
which means house of God, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So my point is, is just that when you see these acts of worship, this is just, it's individual, uh, it's very, uh, uh, very impromptu in some cases. Uh, now, before the Mosaic Law, because the Mosaic Law really gets the, the priesthood very specialized, so before the Mosaic Law, it appears that sacrifice and worship was personal, as over against corporate. It was very personal. It was simple. They would just simply gather some stones and make a pile of stones, and that was the altar upon which they offered sacrifices. It did not require any special attire because the priests and the high priest had very specific clothing that they wore at the tabernacle and the temple, but this was not the case with worship that was done prior to the law, so it did not require any special attire. And it was not tied to a specific geographic location or facility like the tabernacle was, and the tabernacle was a portable unit. It could be disassembled and moved and then reassembled. Whereas the temple, once the temple's built, it's a fixed location. And so if you wanted to go and worship, you had to go to the temple. So again, when you think about worship prior to the Mosaic Law, again, it appears that uh, the sacrifice and worship was personal, simple, did not require special attire, and was not tied to a specific location or facility. Now, after Israel was delivered from the bondage of Egypt... God established the Hebrews as a theocratic nation among the Gentile nations of the world. And God originally intended that the whole nation was to become a kingdom of priests. In fact, he says in Exodus 9, 6, he says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God intended the whole nation, uh, again, to be a kingdom of priests. However, because of the sin of worshiping the golden calf, which appears in Exodus 32, God took that privilege from the nation and confined the priesthood to the descendants of Aaron and the Levites who were their assistants. You know what's fascinating to me is when you get to Exodus chapter 9, I was thinking about this the other day because Sherry and I were talking about it. In Exodus 9, you have God descending upon the mountain. In a cloud, there was fire, they could audibly hear the voice of God. It says that the earth quaked underneath their feet. And so they were seeing God and hearing God live. And if they'd have had cameras or camcorders, they could have filmed the whole thing. They could have posted it on YouTube and record and because they could hear the voice of God audibly and they could see it and they could feel the earthquake. Now, you would think that that kind of experience would, uh, would have a, a serious impact and would, would lead you to fear the Lord and to operate by holiness. What's fascinating, though, is from Exodus 19 to Exodus 32, you're talking a very short period of time, maybe even just a few weeks. And it's fascinating that these people could have this encounter with God, a very powerful encounter with God. Again, that they see the cloud descend upon the mountain, they see the fire, they hear the voice of God, the earth is quaking and rumbling under their feet, and yet two weeks later, while Moses is up on the mountain conversing with God, the people come to Aaron and they say, hey, Moses is gone, make us a god that we can worship. And Aaron, being the poor leader that he was, uh, consented and, uh, and said, all right, give me your gold. And he fashioned it into a god and said, this is your god, and tomorrow we're going to have a celebration. And you're just thinking, what in the world are you doing, Aaron? But it just goes to show that having those sorts of encounters doesn't, doesn't necessarily uh, have an impact upon us in such a way such that it 
guarantees holiness. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I like my experiences, but um, I find that when I get into the Word and the Word of God gets into me, uh, it has the actual uh, desired effect that I want. So, again, my point here, and we chased a rabbit trail there, but my point is, is just that God originally intended the whole nation to be a kingdom of priests. However, because of the sin of worshiping the golden calf, God took that privilege from the nation and confined the priesthood to the descendants of Aaron, and the Levites were their assistants. And so to be a high priest, you had to be a physical descendant of Aaron. And then you had the priests that would serve, uh, who were part of the tribe of Levi, uh, who would serve uh, under uh, Aaron, under the high priests. Now what's interesting is that God uh, required that the priests could not have any physical defects. That the priests who, who were going to serve Aaron or the other high priests after Aaron had died, uh, that, the, that the Levites could not have any physical defects. And this was because the demands of the work were so rigorous, and the work was so demanding because you're, you're dealing with heavy animals, you're dealing with uh, picking up baskets full of crops uh, and food and fruit and vegetables, and you're dealing with large animals, sheep and sometimes bulls, and you have to physically be able to handle uh, this, this work. So they could not have any physical defects. In fact, in Leviticus 21, uh, it says, uh, starting in verse 17, uh, it, it says here, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. No one who has a defect shall approach, a blind man or a lame man or one who has a, a disfigurement. Some say a face here, but the word face is in italics, so that's not in the original Hebrew. But one who is disfigured or has a deformity or a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or one who has a defect in his eyes and so on. And it lists these, uh, these uh, handicaps that would disqualify them from serving. And again, it had to do uh, to a large degree with the physical demands of the job. Not only that, but to serve as a Levitical priest, there was also an age limit. And the age limit started at 25 and ended, and ended at 50. If you look at Numbers 8, 24 and 25, it says this is what applies to the Levites. From 25 years old and upward, they shall enter to perform service in the work of the tent of meeting. Verse 25 says, but at the age of 50 years, they shall retire from service in the work and not work anymore. So there was a 25-year window of time from the age of 25 to 50 that, that they were qualified to work. And then, but before and after that, you, you were not eligible. Now, the priests were originally associated with the tabernacle for their service and then later the temple. And remember that the tabernacle was built under the leadership of Moses during the time of the wilderness wanderings. So the exodus occurred circa 1446-1445 B.C., and it was during it was shortly after the Exodus that the tabernacle was uh, constructed. Now it was roughly about four hundred years, uh, maybe four hundred and fifty years later, that the temple was built under the reign of Solomon. And so, quite a period of time passed where people worshipped at the tabernacle. And remember that the tabernacle again was a portable unit; it could be it could be disassembled, transported, and then reassembled at another location. So the priests were originally associated with the tabernacle for their service and later to the temple. 
and special clothing was required both for the priests and the high priest. Now, I did a short little 10-minute video here um, a couple days ago on the high priest, and I'll send that out because I, I walked through the clothing and the articles of the clothing and what, what the high priest had to wear, and it was very fascinating. And so I'll send that out with, uh, with tonight's email. When I send that out, I'll, I'll include that little video in there because it's very helpful to understand. Now, throughout their years of priestly service, the priests had several requirements. One, they were to be holy in their behavior. Remember that God had called them to be a holy nation and a holy people. So they were to be holy, to their, uh, holy in their behavior. And this means set apart for a special purpose set apart really uh, for the Lord and to the Lord. They were also to provide daily maintenance of the tabernacle courtyard and sacrifices. Now, I've thought about it because when you, when, if you had gone to the uh, tabernacle or to the temple, as you approached and sacrifices were being offered, it must have smelled like a barbecue because of all the flesh that was cooking on the altar. And so there must have been this aroma. Well, the priests actually got part of their pay, not just from the tithe, because the tithe went to the priests, because the, the, the Levites and the priests uh, could not own land. So the tithe that was offered by the other tribes went to the Levites to support them in their priestly service, because that was how they, that was how they lived. But the tithe uh, consisted largely of food items that they could then rely upon or sell. But the priests also could take a portion of the sacrifice. So when if a, if a lamb was offered or a bull was offered, a portion of the sacrifice went to the priest, and the priest would then take it home, and that was what, what, what was for dinner that night. You know, for, for the wife and for the kids, that was, that was what they ate. But the work of the priest had to be pretty demanding, and, and the, the, the Levites wore these white uh, undergarments or these white robes. Now the now the high priest he had the white robe, but then he had the blue robe, and then he had the outer garment, which was multicolored with purple and uh, blue and scarlet with gold thread in the middle of it. Uh, very beautiful. But but to set and handle these animals all day long and to clean the altar and the ashes would have been uh, would have been a dirty job. And so. Uh, they would have had to have maintained their clothes. So when we think about the maintenance of the tabernacle, the courtyard, and the sacrifices, again, a lot of work, a lot of work. Now, the priests were also to teach God's law to others. This was part of the function of the priesthood. They were to teach God's law to others. And you see examples of this, like over in Leviticus 10, verse 11. When talking about the priests, it says, So as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Of course, we think of Ezra, who was also a priest. And in Ezra 7.10, it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. A wonderful passage on this is Malachi 2.7. Malachi 2.7 which reads, For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord. And so the priests under the Mosaic law were to be, they were to be students of the word, and they were to communicate the word to others. That was part of their responsibility. Point number four, they were to offer sacrifices for sin to God. 
by the way, the book of Leviticus was written to the Levites largely to tell them how to offer sacrifices and how to maintain the temple and so on. And it was, um, again, it was a lot of work, a lot of work. Point number five, they were to adjudicate legal matters. So if there were uh, legal cases in dispute, they could bring it to the priests, and the priests were to know the law, the Mosaic law, so well that they could adjudicate these, these legal matters. They were also to preserve the tabernacle and temple. <clears throat> they were to inspect persons, animals, and fabrics to make sure that they were clean. Again, they were to inspect persons, animals, and fabrics to make sure they were clean. And if they brought uh, like, a, like a lame uh, sheep or something or a goat or a bull, uh, the priests were to inspect it and they were to send that away because you had to bring, uh, you had to bring the best is what you had to bring. I mean, God had given his best to them to bless them. And so when they brought the sacrifices, they were not to bring any lame animals. Point number eight is that they were to receive tithes. They were to receive tithes. Now, I did a lesson here not too long ago on tithing uh, here uh, about a week and a half, maybe two weeks ago, um, and tried to be brief on that. It's easy for me to run long for hours on such a subject, so for me to uh, discipline it and get it down to a 40-minute lesson is a, is a real challenge for me sometimes. But the priests were to receive the tithe, and again, this was how they made their living, how they, how they, you know, fed their families, how they bought their clothes, you know, it was, it was what they needed. So Numbers 18.21 says, For the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they performed, the service of the tent of meeting. And not only that, but the, but the Levites were to give a tithe of their tithe for service. And you see that in Numbers 18.26. And the priests were to pronounce God's blessing on the nation. And you see the ironic uh, blessing, the benediction in Numbers 6, 22 to 27, uh, which reads, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, and here's the blessing that they were to pronounce, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and then I will bless them. Again, a very beautiful benediction, but something that they were to, uh, something that was part of their function as the priests. Now, the high priest was, in effect, the supervisor of all of the other priests and really had to be a direct descendant of Aaron. And the high priest was one to provide divine guidance. And this raises a lot of questions because you have this reference to the Urim and the Thummim. <laughs> and there's a lot of question about what were the Urim and Thummim? And the answer is, I don't know. And neither does anybody else. And there's a lot of speculation about it. Some, some think it was a black stone and a white stone because in the breast piece it folded up on itself and there would made a little pocket. And I talk about this in the video that I did on the high priest and the clothing. And the Urim and Thummim, uh, these uh, stones were kept inside the pocket. And so the idea was that you could come to the high priest if you were, had a question about, you know, do we go to war? You know, do we do this? Do, do we do that? And the priest could consult the Lord and then reach inside and pull out one of these stones. 
Uh, and, and if it was, you know, one or the other, it was basically a yes or a no. We know so little about the Urim and Thummim. Again, it's just sparse information. And the breast piece that, that the high priest wore was sometimes called uh, the breast piece of judgment or the breast piece of decision because it was used uh, to provide divine guidance from God to God's people. And second, the uh, high priest was to perform official duties in the Holy of Holies once a year. And you can read about that in Leviticus chapter 16, which talks about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And what's going on there is the high priest, when he goes in, he is to offer a sacrifice uh, for himself first. In fact, you see that uh, down in verse 6, where it says in uh, Leviticus 16, 6, Then Aaron shall offer the bull for, for the sin offering, which is for himself. Because even the high priests were sinners. They had to offer a sacrifice for their own sin before they could offer a sacrifice for the nation. Not only that, but uh, he will offer a sacrifice, he will offer a bull for the, for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. So apparently uh, Mrs. Aaron and the kids, apparently they were sinners too. So he offered a sacrifice for himself, for his family, and then for the nation. And this was done once a year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And so the temple, the tabernacle, was divided into two. You had the outer room, which was called the holy place, the Kodesh. And in it, you would have the menorah, you would have the altar of incense, and you would have the table of showbread. And the high priest, and then there was the veil, and the veil was made of the same material as the high priest's clothing. With the, with, the, with the purple and the blue and the scarlet and the gold thread throughout. Again, it was very beautiful, very, very attractive, uh, very aesthetically pleasing to, to, to look at. But it's thought on the Day of Atonement that the high priest would take uh, some of the uh, coals off of the, uh, off of the altar that was in the courtyard, bring it in, and put it uh, on this altar, the altar of incense, and that he would put incense on it. And the idea is that it would, the thought is, is that it would create this smoke in the room, which would serve as like a temporary covering because he had to part the curtain and he had to go into the Holy of Holies, which housed the Ark of the Covenant, which had the mercy seat on top. And you had these two large angels, these cherubim, uh, overarching the Ark of the Covenant. And he had to go in there and he had to sprinkle some blood on the top of the mercy seat. And so he would go from the holy place, what was called the Kodesh, into the Holy of Holies, which was called the Kodesh HaKodeshim. Uh, and he did this once a year. And this was on the Day of Atonement. And you can read about that in Leviticus 16. Now, transitioning into talking about the Christian as a, as a priest we should understand that Israel and the church are both the people of God, but we function under different directives. Biblical distinctions reveal that Israel is a nation. Israel is a nation. But the church is not a nation. We are not a nation. In fact, we exist globally all over the planet. Excuse me. And God's program for Israel focused on the land promised to Abraham, focused on the land so you think of like Genesis 15, 18, where God says, On that day the Lord made a covenant, a berith, with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of, of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, the river of Egypt, there's speculation on that, whether that's the Nile 
or whether it's a, another little river called the Wadi El Arish. Uh, either way, those are not too far from each other. But if you take the region from the River of Egypt as far as the Great River, the, the River Euphra Euphrates, you're talking, you're talking Iraq, uh, modern-day Iraq. That's a large piece of land, and Israel has never possessed all of the land. And yet this is what God promised to them. But the point is, is that uh, God's program for Israel focused on the land, whereas the church is called to go out to many lands. We're, we're not given a, a special piece of real estate. We're told to go to all the nations of the world. Mark 16, 15, Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. So we go out to many lands. Israel was mentioned throughout the Old Testament and was recognized by other nations as a nation. But the church was a mystery not known in the Old Testament. Israel was said to be under the law of Moses, whereas the church is said to be under the law of Christ, under a different law code. Israel had a priesthood that was specific to the tribe of Levi. And if so, if you were going to be a priest, you had to belong to the tribe of Levi. If you belong to the tribe of Judah, sorry, you're out. If you, if you belong to the tribe of Benjamin, sorry, you're out. If you belong to the tribe of Dan, sorry, you're out. If you wanted to function as a priest, you had to belong to the tribe of Levi. And, if, and the high priest had to be uh, a descendant, again, a direct descendant of Aaron. And again, the priesthood uh, was not only uh, narrow, narrowly assigned to the tribe of Levi, but again, it had to be a male, had to have no physical defects, and had to be between the ages of 25 and 50. So there were strict requirements. So Israel had a priesthood that was specific to the tribe of Levi, whereas all Christians are priests to God. Again, Revelation 1.6, it says, And he, that is Christ, has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. So every believer is a priest. Every believer is a priest. And so this happens at the moment of salvation. Now Israel first worshipped at the tabernacle and later at the temple. So they had a place to which they went for worship, for sacrifice. But for Christians, our body is the temple of the Lord, and we gather wherever we want. Tonight we happen to be gathered in the cookhouse. And, uh, but nonetheless, the scripture is very clear when it says, like in 1 Corinthians 16, 19, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And Israel offered animal sacrifices to God. They offered animal sacrifices to God. But Christians are to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Spiritual sacrifices. Now we're going to talk about what those are here in just a moment. So we're going to be specific on that. So, But Christians are to offer spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And Israel was required to tithe from the produce of their land. But there is no tithe that is required from Christians, only a joyful attitude when giving. So the New Testament does not specify a tithe upon the Christian. It just simply says that God loves a cheerful giver. In fact, he says in uh, 2 Corinthians 9-7 that each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. And so if you are feeling, uh, if there's, if there's uh, some grudgery in your heart, don't give. D don't, don't, don't do it. If you feel you're under compulsion, if somebody's compelling you to give, don't do it. 
Don't do it. Because he's very clear here. He says uh, that each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. Save your money. You know, go have lunch somewhere. You know, go enjoy a nice dinner with your family. But don't give grudgingly and don't give under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. He loves a cheerful giver. So those are some of the distinctions between Israel and the church, just, just to name a few. Now, the death of Christ on the cross fulfilled the Mosaic law and ended the Old Testament sacrificial system and the Aaronic priesthood. Romans 6.14 is clear when it says, You are not under law, but under grace. And in uh, Romans 10.4, it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Uh, now, today, there is no specialized priesthood. There is no specialized priesthood. And the Catholic Church or any organization is not justified in creating a priestly class within the body of Christ. Uh, there's simply no justification for that. Now, in the church age, every Christian is a priest to God. And this is part of our spiritual service. This is why I'm including this in our study on the spiritual life, because it's very relevant. It's very, very relevant to our spiritual walk with the Lord. And so every Christian is a priest to God and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Christian becomes a priest at the moment of salvation. And this is a work of the Lord Jesus Christ, again, Revelation 1.6, for he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. And by the way, this, uh, this issue of the priesthood of the believer was a big issue during the time of the Reformation. And there were a number of issues. Now, the Reformation got some stuff wrong. Luther was, uh, had some anti-Semitic tendencies, and he said some pretty nasty, nasty stuff, which is to be, uh, which is to be rejected. Uh, but Luther had a lot of other things that he got that was right. And by the way, that's true for all of us. I mean, you'll never find a perfect believer or a perfect uh, pastor, teacher, or anybody. I mean, none of us are, are sinless or perfect or flawless. Um, I think of Romans, I, excuse me, I think it's Proverbs 10.19. Could be off on this, but I think it's Proverbs 10.19. It says that where Solomon says, In many words, transgression is unavoidable. In many words, transgression is unavoidable. And preachers love to multiply words. We do. And so invariably, you're going to find something wrong, because at some point we're going to say something that's just, you know, wrong. And you have to kind of pick your battles on some of those issues. And, um, you know, I, I abide by what I call the 90-10 rule. You know, if, if, if there's a preacher that I agree with 90% of the time, man, we're, we're on good ground, you know. Uh, if there's other issues where we can disagree, well, that's all right. They go their way. I'll go with God. And, uh, and, and we'll, just, we'll just part there. But, but, you know, you've got to extend a little grace, you, really. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, but the, the issue of the priesthood of the believer was a, was a big issue during the time of the Reformation, and uh, that was a very interesting period of time to study, but they, they did get a lot right, I'll say that. They did get a lot right, and they got back to the Bible, and sola scriptura, and sola gratia, and sola fide, and sola Christus, sola gloria Dei, to God alone be the glory. I mean, they had many things that they got right, some things they got wrong, 
Uh, Calvin went off the deep end. He got a lot of his theology right, but uh, he became a bit of a tyrant and even approved a man to be killed uh, because of their political disagreements. And you just say, man, Calvin, what, what happened, buddy? You know, you kind of slipped there a little bit. Uh, but it just goes to show that even great theologians can have dark sides and do some pretty boneheaded stuff. And so, uh, again, just don't be surprised when you see it. And just so that I don't go too far down that rabbit hole, let's get back, let's get back to the notes here. So Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.5, he says, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices. And, uh, and this is what we offer up to God through Jesus Christ. And so nobody shows up at church, at least I hope they don't, nobody shows up at church with a lamb <laughs> or any doves or they don't show up with a bull, you know, that sort of thing. And so uh, you don't see that. But, but that in itself tells you something, that that system has been done away with. And by the way, the whole sacrificial system, when you look back at it, it was designed to be temporary and it was designed to be didactic. That is instructional. And you think of all of the lambs that died and the lambs that were offered and the blood that was shed. And, and again, it's instructional. It was designed to be informative. It was designed to communicate something. So, so here you are. You're the sinner. You've committed this sin. And uh, God had provided this whole sacrificial system as a way to come back to fellowship with him. So if you were a believer and you had sinned, you had uh, disobeyed God's law if you'd violated one of the 613 commands. Well, you were, you were outside of fellowship, and you could be brought back into fellowship, but you had to bring an offering. And sometimes, I think it was Dr. Ryrie, I was sitting in a class with him, and I think he likened the offering almost to a, to a fine system, to where depending upon the crime, you know, you had to offer this sacrifice, like a, like a dove, or if it was a little larger of a, of a crime that you committed... I use the word crime in place of sin, by the way. Um, but if you committed a large crime, well, then you brought a lamb. And if it was a big crime, you brought a bull, you know, that sort of thing. And there may be some merit to that. But that kind of told on you, didn't it? Because if you were standing in line and you were, you, were, you were waiting to get your turn to come up to the priest and the guy in front of you has two doves and you're standing there with four bulls, well, you know, um, kind, of, kind of a testimony, kind of, kind of tells a story, doesn't it? But they came and they offered these animal sacrifices, and it was also to have a certain shock factor to it. Because you brought the animal, and you brought it up, and you laid it on the altar, and you put your hand on the head of the animal, and you confessed your sins over the animal. And the priest would put his hand on the animal, and then he would reach around with a knife and would cut the animal's throat. And so the animal was made to die. And they would, they would then offer it, they would then cook it, and then they would share in a meal to participate in it. Uh, in the offering, but there was a certain shock factor there. Uh, and the word for atonement that you find throughout the Old Testament translates the Hebrew word kafar, kafar. And the word kafar literally means a covering. And what it was, was it was a temporary arrangement in which you brought the animal sacrifice and God accepted that. And by the way, it was, it communicated the idea of substitution, because the animal was dying in your place, it was, it was bearing the penalty for your sin. So it was made to bear the punishment. So it communicated this idea of substitution. It also communicated the idea of holiness, that God is righteous, and that he demands punishment for sin, and he can either punish it in the offender, or he can punish it in a substitute. 
So all of this communicated something, but the Hebrew verb kafar just simply means to cover. And it was like putting a, a temporary covering over the sin until Christ came. Because all of the lambs that were sacrificed were sacrificed in anticipation of Christ. And this is why when you get to John 1.29 and John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And everybody turned around. Now, as soon as they heard Lamb of God, everybody would have thought of the Lamb that was being offered as a sacrifice. And, of course, they turn around, and what do they see? Who do they see? They see Jesus. And so he is the Lamb of God. By the way, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that's different. That's different. Because his, his death doesn't just simply cover sin. It actually removes it. And in theology, that's called the doctrine of expiation. It's called the doctrine of expiation. And expiation just simply means it's actually the removal, the subtraction of sin. And that's one aspect of our salvation, because salvation for us is not just minus sin. It's not just the removal of sin. There's also an addition to that. We must receive uh, uh, not only the removal of our sin, the forgiveness of our sin, but also the imputation of life and righteousness, which we, both re- which we receive both of those as a gift from God. But the sacrificial system was done away with. But the idea of offering up sacrifices is still very much present in the Scripture. Only now what we offer up are spiritual sacrifices. So let's talk about specifically what those are. Well, first is the continual giving of the body for service to the Lord. The continual giving of the body for service to the Lord. In Romans 12.1, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren. By the way, when he says therefore, he's drawing a conclusion to the previous 11 chapters. And Paul has a style of teaching uh, that if you ever study the literary style of Paul, uh, you realize that he, he breaks his, his writings, his letters down, into a, a very simple structure to where he teaches... And uh, chapters, Romans chapters 1 through 11 is basically Paul providing information. There's, there's, there's not hardly any directives to do anything. And so Romans 1, 1 through 11 is basically know this. Know this. By the way, he does the same thing in Ephesians. Ephesians 1 through 3, uh, there's not any directive to do anything. He's just simply giving you information. He's dumping on you. And Paul is a very dense thinker and a very dense writer. He packs a lot of stuff in there. But Ephesians 1 through 3 is know this, and then you get to Ephesians 4, 1, and it says, therefore. And then Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is do this, do this. So, so he teaches them, he says, know this, and then in and then chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians, it's do this. So you have the application born out of, of the knowledge. In theology, we, 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 we draw a distinction between those, those two aspects. One is called orthodoxy, orthodoxy, which is right thinking, And the other one is called orthopraxy, which is right living. And right living comes out of right thinking or right doctrine. Well, Paul does the same thing in Romans, Romans 1 through 11. He's dumping a lot of information and he's saying, know this. And then you get to Romans 12 and following and it's do this. There's there's orthopraxy. There's all this application that's born out of it. But he says, therefore, therefore, based on everything that goes before. Because when you see the therefore, you have to ask, well, what's the therefore, therefore? And so he says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to do what? 
to present your bodies a living and holy, what? Sacrifice, which is acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Think of it. Offering your bodies as a living, not a dead sacrifice, because in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was a one-and-done deal. And, uh, and so, but when you come and you place yourself upon the altar of the Lord for service, it is to be a living sacrifice. So it is the continual giving of your body. It is literally a moment by moment, day by day service to the Lord in which you wake up each day and you stand at attention and you say, in my mind, I do this, I salute and say, okay, Lord, ready for service. What do you, what do you have me do today, Lord? You know, how, how, how am I going to serve you? And so you surrender yourself. But he says here that it is to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Now, the challenge for us is not to wriggle off the altar uh, and to go and do our own thing, but to stay in that place of sacrifice and to service. And it's literally the presenting of our bodies. He says, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, the other thing that we offer to the Lord is praise. Now, this is what we most commonly think of when we think of, when we think of, um, uh, sacrifice in Hebrews thirteen fifteen uh, legitimizes this. In Hebrews thirteen fifteen, he says, "Through him, then, let us continually offer up what a sacrifice of praise to God." He says, "Excuse me, that is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to His name, and it's called a sacrifice of praise." And I think that I think he brings that language in there in part because there are times where when we come to worship the Lord, we do it out of an act of obedience and not necessarily because we feel like it. And what I have found, by the way, is that if I'm feeling down, if I'm not feeling (laughs) very good about it all, I can put on worship music, and once I get into the worship, my emotion, you know, starts to come around. But here he says, let us continually offer up, again, a sacrifice. He's talking about what we're, again, in the Old Testament, they offered up sacrifices that was fruit and grain and animals and what we offer up is a sacrifice of praise again that is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name we also offer up the sacrifice of good works of doing good works which is the next verse of doing good works and sharing with others and so in hebrews 13 16 it says and do not neglect doing good and sharing and this has to do with sharing of resources uh, you know, Stephanie came this evening and she bought some Twinkies. So she came with a gift. She came sharing some resources. Well, praise God. I love Twinkies. I'm going to enjoy one after Bible study. Uh, so we, we do not neglect doing good and doing good to other people. Think of it. Just simply doing good to other people and sharing that is giving of our resources. He says, for with such what? Sacrifices. God is what? Pleased. With such sacrifices, God is pleased. Point number four, we talk about the sacrifice of personal life for the benefit of others. The sacrifice of personal life. And Paul gave of his life for the benefit of other people. He devoted himself to ministry. He could have, he could have pursued a career. He could have lived, a, I suspect, in a, 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 a pretty well-off life. But he saw his life as being poured out as a drink offering. In fact, he says that in Philippians 2.17. He says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, again, it's a sacrifice. He says, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. 
And Paul considered, considered it the highest and most noble calling uh, to, 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 to be that of ministry, in which he gave of himself a sacrifice for the benefit of others. He was, he was happy with that. He was okay with that. Point number five is the walk of sacrificial love. The walk of sacrificial love. Uh, Paul says in uh, Ephesians 5.1, he says, Therefore be imitators of God. Think about it. Imitate God. Talk about a high standard, <laughs> right? Uh, I sometimes think of Jesus when he was growing up as a young boy, you know, and of course he was sinless. He was perfect. And I can imagine Mary talking to his brothers and sisters and saying, why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> I'm like, come on, mom. <laughs> but here he says, uh, be imitators of God as beloved children. And notice what he says, and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So this idea of walking in love is itself regarded as an offering and a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. Think of it. When you are walking in love, God is pleased with that. He's, he smiles on that. He smiles on all of these things. I mean, he smiles on the sacrifice of your life, the praise of worship, the doing good works, the sacrifice of one's life. Also, number six here, giving financially to support ministry. And this is what I meant by earlier, that sometimes there is a tangible aspect to this. Paul says in Philippians 4.18, he says, But I received everything in full. And have an abundance. I am amply supplied. What's he talking about? He's talking about a gift that the church of Philippi, these Christians, which was a very, very small church, by the way, uh, gave financially to support Paul's ministry because Paul needed the support of, uh, of others. And it was a way for them to participate in his ministry. But he says, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. He said, I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent. And notice what he calls it, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. All the language of a sacrifice. And I have people that have given gifts to me over the years, uh, donations, some small, some large. I received a gift here a few days ago that's going to cover some travel expenses and some purchase of uh, resources. And, you know, I'm greatly blessed by that. And, I, and it's just, you know, it comes out of nowhere because I never solicit, uh, but God just sometimes puts it on people's hearts and, uh, and they do this. But again, we see here where Paul is, uh, is receiving this, uh, this uh, monetary gift, and he says it's a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And then point number seven has to do with the confession of personal sin to God for restoration of fellowship. Because under 1 John 1, 9, again, when, when we come before the Lord in the Old Testament, they would have brought an animal sacrifice. Well, we don't bring that. We look to the sacrifice of Christ, and that's why 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins. Well, this is a function of the priesthood of the believer. You just simply come and you confess your sin to God. You name it to God. And the scripture tells us that he's faithful. He always says the same thing, and he's righteous to do what? To forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when I confess it, the word says he forgives it, and by faith I trust him at his word, and that's that. So we have these seven points of spiritual sacrifices that we offer up to the Lord. 
Now, going on in the notes here, the practice of the Christian priesthood begins when the believer surrenders his or her own body as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which Paul says, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, which surrendered their life once, the Christian life is a moment-by-moment continual surrender to God. This spiritual service is performed primarily within the body of Christ toward other believers for their benefit. It is selfless. It is sacrificial. It is done in love for the edification and the building up of others within the body of Christ. And so rather than offer the the sacrifice of animals, the Christian is called to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And so when Paul writes about giving ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice to God for spiritual service, by the way, he does not leave his reader guessing as to what he means. For one has only to continue reading in Romans chapter 12 to understand his practical application. A few verses later, the apostle uh, provided practical application to his statement when he wrote about Christian service to others within the church. Paul said, and here I'm citing verses 4 through 8, he says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, and here he's talking about spiritual gifts, he says, Each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, or he who gives with liberality, or he who leads with diligence, or he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, prophecy was understood two ways in the Bible. It could be foretelling of events in which God provided direct revelation to foretell something. But prophecy could also be forth-telling, forth-telling, that is, communicating God's word to others. And, uh, and he goes on, he talks about his service. There's a gift of service. There's some people that just serve in the body of Christ. And then we have those who teach. I have the gift of teaching. It came to me when I came to faith in Christ at the age of eight. I didn't realize it till years later and then began to work hard to um, get the education I needed so that I could exercise that gift. But you have those who teach in his teaching or he who exhorts. In his exhortation, or he who gives, God gives some uh, Christians within the body of Christ a great business acumen, great business wisdom, and gives them opportunity to be able to work and to start a business and do well. And then, uh, and then God blesses them tremendously, and they wind up becoming those who support other people uh, in ministry. And so, he who gives with liberality, or he who leads, there is a gift of leadership within the body of Christ. Or he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, because if somebody's going to show mercy to the poor or to the downtrodden, it's it's good to have a cheerful disposition, right? Nobody likes a dour expression. (laughs) But going on in the notes here, Peter wrote, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as the good stewards, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So what we see here is love set in motion for the benefit of others. It is taking what God has given to us spiritually or materially and giving it freely for others to be blessed. And this is one of the reasons why I never put a charge on any of my material, my audio, my video. Now, the books are different because I have to go through channels uh, through Amazon to get that published. uh, But I try to bring the price down to the lowest possible point. 
uh, and even the few dollars. I, last year, I made $64 <laughs> on all of my book sales, which went back into ministry, by the way. So it was used to help pay for other ministry expenses. Uh, but it is taking what God has given to us spiritually and materially and giving it freely for others to be blessed. And this is consistent with what Paul writes elsewhere when he states in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, when he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. I think that verse, I think those two verses right there would solve a lot of marital problems. <laughs> I think they would solve a lot of business problems too. <laughs> now, from where does Paul uh, learn his way of thinking? I think he learned it from the Lord Jesus himself. Paul wrote in Philippians 2, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus is our prime example of a priestly life that has been surrendered for service to God. Jesus' life was given for the blessing of others. In John ten eleven, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And elsewhere in Mark 10.45, he said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So we see that selflessness, that sacrificial mindset that is there in Christ. Now, several things may be said about Jesus' willingness to surrender his life to his Father. And here I have a quote from Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer concerning this matter. He says, First, Christ was willing to go where his Father chose. He was at home in the glory. It was his native environment, but he came into this world with a mission and a message of grace. God had an only son, and he was a foreign missionary. Such was his father's will for him, and his attitude may be expressed by the familiar words, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. Second, Christ was willing to be whatever his father chose. He made of himself no reputation. He was not only willing to lay aside the garments of his glory, but he was willing as well to be set at naught and to be spit upon and to be crucified. That was the Father's will for him, and his attitude may well be expressed in the words, I'll be what you want me to be. Third, Christ was willing to do whatever his Father chose. He became obedient to the point of death, and in so doing, his attitude may again be expressed in the words, I'll do what you want me to do, end quote. As Christians, we look to Jesus as our primary role model. And Jesus sought to glorify the Father in every regard. And this, and this meant living in accordance with Scripture and being willing to go and do whatever was required of Him. No doubt this brought joy and at other times sorrow. And the primary purpose of His life and the primary purpose of life is really to glorify God. And this is accomplished by us as believers as we learn and live God's word and advance to spiritual maturity. Quoting Chafer again, he says, quote, Yieldedness to the will of God is not demonstrated by some one particular issue. It is rather a matter of having taken the will of God as the rule for one's life. To be in the will of God is simply to be willing to do his will 
without reference to any particular thing he may choose, it is electing his will to be final even before we know what he may wish us to do. It is therefore not a question of being willing to do some one thing. It is a question of being willing to do anything, when, where, and how it may seem best in his heart of love. It is taking the normal and natural position of childlike trust, which has already consented to the wish of the Father, even before anything of the outworking of his wish is revealed, end quote. Now, the priestly life, as we wrap this up, the priestly life of service to God and others belongs really to every Christian. It is a life of sacrifice for the spiritual and material well-being of others, especially those within the church, the body of Christ. More so, it begins when the believer decides to commit his or her life to God, to love kindness, to walk humbly, and to pursue righteousness and goodness in all things. So that is going to close out our section on spiritual sacrifices. So hopefully we understand that a little bit more. I put it in the larger context of uh, worship and the priesthood in the Old Testament. And then we looked at the priesthood of, uh, uh, under the Mosaic Law and then, and then uh, looked more into the priesthood of the believer in the dispensation of the church age. So hopefully that has been helpful in our understanding. Let me stop sharing this here. Do we have any questions over tonight? Marcus, yes, sir, get us started, buddy. <clears throat> Why is it that the priesthood of the believer is necessary given that Christ fulfilled the requirements of the priestly service? So, so the question is, why is the priesthood of the believer necessary since Christ fulfilled the requirements of the, of the priesthood under the law. Is that, is that how you said it? Yes. So apparently it is something that is uh, similar. There's some continuity, but there's something different in the sense that we are a new aspect of the priesthood. And apparently this is something that has been around since way back when, because one can think of Job, for example, uh, that he functioned as the as the priest over his family. And I think, I think there are several aspects of that. I think one is I think that this is something that God wants of his people in whatever time period we live in, whether you're living before the Mosaic Law, whether you're living under the Mosaic Law, whether you're living post-Mosaic Law, like we are right now under the church age. Uh, I think it is an aspect of how God chooses to organize us for service. And it, it also demonstrates several things. It demonstrates, one, that a priest was to function as a mediator uh, between God and others. Uh, Job functioned as the mediator between his sons and God, and so he, he served in that capacity. I think there's also something built into us. I think that for those of us who are born again and walking with God, I think there is, a, I think there is something about the new nature that has a proclivity to want to represent others. I pray for people all the time. I, I pray for the people that come to Bible study. I pray for church. I pray for people I work with. I pray for family. I pray for government officials. There's just something within me that is just drawn uh, to come to the Lord on behalf of other people. So I think there's other aspects of that. There's not really anything stated specifically in the New Testament, but one seems to see that borne out 
in just the natural activity of those who are rightly related to God and have a genuine concern about other people. So I think Christ, having fulfilled the law and and in, in, in as far as like doing away with the sacrificial system, at the same time implemented a new sacrificial system, because the sacrifices that we offer are classified as spiritual in nature, and not offering produce of the land or animals. But but there's still something that we offer. There's still something we bring, and it's part of our function as priests that we do this thing. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Miss, Miss, yeah. It's a really great question. Yeah. A really great explanation. I had a thought that, um, like the the Christian spiritual sacrifices, mm-hmm. they're they're not. I guess the way that they would be different between that and Christ is ours are not for the um, how do I put it for salvation. Right. They're not for salvation. They're not for um, us trying to cover our own sin, like back in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Almost like a more of a, um, a form of worship. It is a form of worship, and I and I would agree with that. It's it's interesting when you look at the passages that we looked at, and of course I was focusing on the word sacrifice and offering and worship and those words that are tied to the function of the priesthood. And so you look at those and you realize that sometimes it comes in the form of of offering worship to God that is the fruit of the lips. Sometimes it comes in a tangible form of sharing with others or doing good. Uh, Again, that's classified as a sacrifice that is well-pleasing to God, a fragrant aroma. (laughs) I mean, the language just smacks of, of, of priestly function. I mean, that whole language is just lifted right out of the New Testament and just dropped right there on what Paul is setting forth. And sometimes it is, like for Paul, it was the giving of his body. It was the giving of his life for service to the Lord and for the benefit of other people. He was devo- he was a man devoted to ministry. Mm-hmm. Now, he was a bivocational minister because he worked a job. He was a tent maker. He was a leather maker. And so that was how he earned his income. But otherwise, he spent his time, you know, leading people to Christ and helping those who were born again to grow in their walk with the Lord. And so, and so he functioned in that way, but then he also taught others you know, how to live out that priestly life, how to function in that capacity. So it's interesting, the different nuances of it, the different aspects of it. So, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question or not, but... I, I actually have two questions. Okay, go ahead. The, um, Moses, uh, like Moses, Moses' father-in-law? Uh, his father-in-law, yeah. Jethro, or, or, or Ruel. RJ. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> RJ. Is this, is this the uh, RJ, this Esau's son? That what? That is Esau's son. Oh, that's Esau's son? No. Is that the same person? No, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. And, and then the, um, do, you, do you think there's any correlation? Um, like how you were describing the high priest outward garment, the different colors. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's any correlation between like Jacob's coat of colors and the high priest's colors? Oh, that's interesting. I, I, I had never thought of that before. Um, the veil is Right, right. Yeah, the question is, is there any correlation between Joseph's coat of many colors and the um, and the colors uh, that were selected for the high priests? Uh, I don't know that, that I've ever heard of a connection made. And, of course, jo- Joseph's coat of many colors, I don't know that we're given the particulars of what those colors were. So, uh, But it is interesting, and, and when I look at the at the high priest garment, again, I'll send the video. It's very short. I tried to keep it short. It's a challenge for me to do that because I want to talk for five hours. Uh, but 
Uh, I did keep it short, but to look at the at the garment, they were beautiful. They were designed for beauty. And so that tells me something about the very character of God, that he, he loves good fashion, okay? Uh, and that he, he, he created something that was to the eye. So if you, were, if you were to walk into the tabernacle or the temple courtyard, you could immediately look and, and see who were the priests because they were all wearing white garments as over against people that just showed up, you know, wearing, you know, T-shirts and flip-flops and whatever, so you could differentiate them. But even among the priests, you could tell who the high priest was because he stood out because of his colorful garments. And because, so he was not only visible, but there were little bells that were hung at the, at the bottom of his garment because you would have a pomegranate and a bell, a pomegranate and a bell. And as he walked, it would, it would make noise. It would jingling, 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 jingling. So he was not only, not only could you pick him out physically by the color of his garments, but he was noisy. And so it was a, hey, look at me sort of thing. And I I find that fascinating, that God himself would design the garments to look this way and to function this way. But but it was, again, it it was so that you could visibly pick this guy out by his clothing, by the way that, by the way that he dressed. So, yeah. Old Testament, there's a lot of foreshadowing. Oh, yes. And, and Christ types. Like yes. Melchizedek and Joseph and all mm-hmm. these different things that are actually pointing towards Christ. So I just, uh, when you were saying that, it just made me think of Joseph and then the high priest and then the veil and hmm. Christ. I was just like, I wonder if there's any correlation. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I've not heard of any, but now you've piqued my curiosity. So, <laughs> All right. Any, any other questions? That, that was actually kind of interesting with the bells. I wonder if part of that was, yeah, so they could be heard, but also if things were too quiet in the temple, they would know that something was amiss. Well, see, and that raises another issue. So like in the temple, when the high priest on the Day of Atonement, when he went behind the veil to sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, when he went into the Holy of Holies, uh, when he went in there, uh, if you no longer heard the bells jingling-a-linging around, and there's actually some speculation, I've, I've never been able to confirm this, so take it with a grain of salt, but I've heard that uh, that there were times where they would tie a rope around the foot of the high priest when he went in there. Because if he died, you nobody else could go in there. And the thought was, well, what if he goes in there and dies? We got to pull him out. <laughs> and I've heard that. And I don't, I don't know if that's just, I just, I don't know what that is. I've, I don't know anything in, from the scriptures, obviously, but, um, but I've heard that, so if you find some reliable source on that, I'd be I'd be curious to uh, hear about that. But yes, yeah. Anyway, I have, I have one more quick question. I don't know if anyone else yeah. has has a question that they want to ask first. I don't want to. Does anybody question. online have any questions? Uh, Marcus has another question. Dan, did you have a question, buddy? Uh, no, I don't have any questions. But I just wanted to say thank you for a wonderful uh, huh. night of. Uh, spiritual words of encouragement oh excellent I was here with my mom and dad and my brother and they got to listen to y'all too oh nice uh, miss you love you all very much love you. yeah well, we love you too hi mom hi dad hi bro there, there's my baby karen okay there she is oh what a beautiful Aww. picture <clears throat> oh lovely that's right <laughs> i'll let you get and uh y'all have a wonderful evening love you all very much love you, okay we'll see you next week buddy yeah. All right. Okay, Marcus, you got your yeah, question. Yeah, so would you say that the priest of the... 
put of the believer is the sum total of the service required from the believer or is a subcategory within the general life of service required? So is the priesthood uh, a specific function, or is it... Is it, is it the sum total? Does it, does it include every manifestation of service, or is it a subcategory within the service expected of the believer? Well, I think it's... I, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know that I would dissect it out that way. It's interesting to think about that, and I hadn't thought about that before, so that's, that's another good, good question. Um, because you have the lists of different... Sacrifices specific, and what's well, given. Of specific uh, gifts mm-hmm. or strengths within, within the body that God gives to us that belief. Right, right. So are those all aspects of this idea of the priesthood of the believer? Well, I think in one sense, I think, uh, I think how it functions. Uh, because just as the priests had different functions under the Mosaic law, uh, certainly there would be different functions within the body of Christ. So if somebody has the gift of service, for example, or somebody has the gift of mercy, or somebody has the gift of leadership or teaching, well, the exercise of that gift for the benefit of other people, would be their specific function of the priesthood for them. Now, another person would function as a priest, uh, representing God, benefiting others, but it would clearly uh, be that specific function uh, for that gift uh, within the body of Christ. All are functioning as priests, but how they function in the capacity would again be predicated on their particular gift and what it is that they brought. Okay. So that, that's the way I, I would think about that. So I don't know if that answered it or not, but yeah. hopefully. So, yes, dear. Yeah, good. But I had another yeah. thought. It had to do with your first question. I love your question, by the way. And thank mm-hmm. you so much. The, um, us being a kingdom of priests, mm-hmm. and uh, that makes me think of, in a sense, you know, how, um, like the Levitical priests, how it said, like, not all Levites were priests, mm-hmm. all that, you know what I mean? Um, that there were only specifics that could go into the Holy Holy. But us all being priests, that means we can all go to God's throne. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah, and we come directly into his throne. That's right. And that's what made me think about us being a kingdom of priests, meaning there's not just some of you who can approach the throne of God. All of you can now. Right, and we have a high priest Mm -hmm. in Jesus who is right now in heaven who is functioning as a high priest for us. He prays for us mm-hmm. as part of what his priestly function is, mm-hmm. and he advocates for us in, in heaven. Mm-hmm. And so we have a high priest. Mm-hmm. We're a kingdom of priests, but we have a high priest right. too, right. and he's currently serving in the heavenlies. Thank the Lord for that. <laughs> Thank the Lord for that. That's right. Yeah. So anyway, that's interesting to think about too. Yeah, a lot of aspects to that. It's very fascinating. So anyway, any other questions? Yeah, I, I think they'd had enough. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's wrap it up with a word of prayer, shall we? Dear Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this time of fellowship, for studying your word, for the things that your word uh, reveals to us. And Father, we just uh, praise you and thank you for all that you are, for all that you blessed us with. Father, we just pray this evening as we go forth that we will be challenged by these things, that we will uh, know how to function Uh, more within the body of Christ and to advance spiritually and to exercise our gifts in such a way that honors you and edifies others. Father, we thank you. 
We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.